Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. Thanks for joining us for our study of 1 Corinthians. We hope you enjoyed the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Good morning. Please take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, and we'll finish up our series today in the book of 1 Corinthians, where we've, which we began back in January. And we've seen every week how the cross of Christ, His resurrection, His work for us on our behalf, and the Christian life today can never be separated and should never be untangled. That they, the cross always has something to show us, something to offer us, no matter what we're facing. So no matter where you are today or what you are dealing with, and what you came in, they're, they're, what we just sang is so true. All of the ground is sinking sand, except that blood-covered ground at Calvary. On Christ we stand. And as Paul closes out this letter, he's reminding these brothers and sisters, his brothers and sisters in Corinth, of some precious truths. And he, he's reminding us, our, our brothers and sisters in Corinth, as well as some precious truths. As he sums up this book today, he's going to make some closing appeals to them. He shows them some things that need to occur, some things that are going to happen as the winter comes. There's some really practical things just about life in Corinth. But what he's really doing, I think, overall, is he's showing them what happens when the grace of God sets the tone of the church. I think he's showing them at the end, kind of the arc of the whole letter, what it is like when grace sets the tone of the church. And as we read this last chapter together, let's stand in honor of the risen Christ whose words we read in His very authority as though they are coming from His very mouth in our presence. And the Spirit says, beginning in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or, or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace. Then he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy Father, now, as we peer into this last chapter in 1 Corinthians, would you help us to see what it means to have the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us? What it means to have love for the Lord Jesus? What it means to have fellowship with one another and hearty greetings in the Lord? So, Lord, now, by your Spirit, would you move among us? And would you change the tone and the atmosphere of our church, of our groups and our discipleship meetings and and the churches all in our city? Would grace set the tone? And it's in the mighty, awesome name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I said earlier, every issue that Paul addresses with the Corinthian church, it always, always boomerangs to the cross of Christ. I mean, think about the very beginning in chapter 1, when the Corinthians are arguing and fighting and dividing over their favorite preachers. I'm of Paul. No, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. They're breaking up in these camps over who are the better teachers. And what does Paul remind them of in chapter 1? He says in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Apollos? He says, no. He reminds them, you are in Christ. You're not in Paul. You are in Christ. You're not in Apollos. You are in Christ. You're not in Matt Chandler. You are in Christ. You're not in John Piper. He's showing them and reminding us the cross of Christ sets our identity and who we, who we have allegiance to. And then in chapter 5, when there is unrepentant sexual sin occurring in the church and even celebrated, what does Paul do? He doesn't say, that's icky, stop it. He does say to stop it, but why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of unrighteousness, but with the new leaven of holiness. Since Jesus has been sacrificed for us, now we celebrate impurity, not an impurity. See, he calls them back to the cross of Christ. In chapter 6, when they're suing each other, taking each other to court over these kinds of minor disagreements, what does he do? Paul says, remember Christ died for you, rose for you, and that you are going to judge angels together in eternal life to come. He sets their new perspective. How often when you're having a disagreement with your wife or your spouse or another Christian brother or sister, how often does the fact that you two are going to judge angels together in eternity change the conversation? Never. That never comes to mind. And Paul says, it should. 
Because when you realize we're going to judge the universe together with Jesus, these little petty disagreements over what does next exit mean is gone. They're just eliminated. And as more and more issues unfold in the church, he reminds them of the great love of God and that they have experienced the great love of God. They are now empowered to show the same contours of that love to one another. When you know that God's love is patient and kind, when that has infected you, now it dominoes, and now it just devastates them abusing the Lord's Supper. Now it dominoes and devastates into them eating meat offered to idols and not caring if it wounds any other Christians. It destroys their efforts to overemphasize certain spiritual gifts and therefore overemphasize and overvalue the people that have those gifts and then devalue those who do not. You see, the cross continues to change our perspective. What Paul is doing, I think, in this entire letter is he's showing them how the grace of Christ sets the tone of the church. I mean, look at the very first verse in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. These greetings, the beginning greetings and the ending greetings, these aren't throwaway fillers. These are significant. And in verse 2, Verse 3, look at how he ends. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the very first things he wants to remind them of before he starts diving into all of their issues, he says, grace to you. Everything I'm going to say in this letter is framed by God's grace to you. Now, look at the second to last verse in the book. Chapter 16, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Be with you. I'm beginning it with God's grace, and now I'm ending it with God's grace. God's grace bookends the entire book, and not even this last bookend isn't just a, okay, full stop, period, stop. It's may it be with you. May you experience it, and may it continue in your journey throughout the Christian life. May it set the tone of the church at Corinth. Guys, we know this, that we know that doctrine matters. But we often don't realize is that church culture matters. You remember what Jesus said? The world, in John 13, the world will know you are my disciples by your well-refined doctrine. No. The world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Of course doctrine matters. Absolutely. Our church and others like ours, we are not in immediate danger of having doctrine that dishonors Christ. But our church and others like ours in the Bible Belt, we are in constant danger, if we're not careful, of having a church culture, an ecosystem, an atmosphere, the intangibleness of the church, its tone that misfires from the precious doctrine. It is possible for us to have the right doctrine, but yet betray that doctrine in how we live. What we need in our day, today and for the long haul, is a robust gospel doctrine and a supernatural gospel culture where grace sets the tone of the church. When grace sets the tone of a church, people are freed up from fakeanity, which we all are well-versed in, where you're free to walk in the light, to actually be who you are. Not pretend like your marriage is better than it actually is. 
Now pretend like your kids aren't the actual hell raisers that they are and that you're, you're struggling with parenting them. That you have sins that you're really struggling with and you're scared to confess them. But when grace sets the tone, all that gets nuked. Grace in the church helps us lower our suspicions and fears of one another. We can enjoy the green pastures the Lord is walking us through together. I want to enjoy a church like that. And I think the Lord's taking us there. I think we're on the heels of it. I'm seeing it in glimmers at our men's community in theology on Tuesday nights. We're opening the Bible. We're looking to Jesus. And men are actually confessing sin. They're safe to walk in the light. No one's trust is broken. And, th- and these guys, we're, we're confessing real things, seeking prayer for real, honest things in our lives, not grandma's hangnail, not cousin Betty's heart palpitation, as important as that is. But men confessing real things about themselves needing prayer, needing help, needing someone to bear their burdens. And then we honor each other. When Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. All we do is we uh, teach the Bible, then we walk in the light together and pray, and then we outdo each other in showing honor. We just single out a guy, and we just keep piling honor on him. We're so thankful for you. You've done this until he's like almost embarrassed. Say, please stop encouraging me so much. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it except in one place, in Nashville, Tennessee, at Emmanuel Church with Ray Ortland. It's amazing because grace is setting the tone of those times. And every man is welcome. I invite every man to be there this Tuesday night, right here, 7 p.m. I've blown away every week. I was even suspicious. Is this going to work? And the guys that are there, they're, they're walking out smiling in joy over Jesus. I know I need it. Because when grace sets the tone of the church, no matter what occurs, our opinions and our judgments of each other always land in the same place. It's a brother or sister in Christ. Because what we're seeing in this book is that grace forms our fellowship. Grace forms our fellowship. Look at the very last verse, verse 24. Look at what Paul says. May may my love be with you all in Christ Jesus Amen. That is amazing to me, the way he would end this book. Think about this letter. How many problems is this church experiencing? How many problems do they have? Dozens. And they get two letters. And there's, these are which ones in the Bible. We know there are others that are not in the Bible. It's getting so bad that this church is rejecting Paul. They don't think he's an apostle anymore. They disdain him. They think he's a wuss. And they don't think he's a good enough teacher. They're rejecting his apostleship status. They're done with him. Some of them are. And despite the Corinthians' issues with sins and their disdain for Paul, what does he do? He reminds them, I love you. My love be with you all. I don't expect that verse to be there. If that were happening today in our current American evangelicalism, it would say something like this. My love be with some of you. You know who you are. (laughs) Or it'd say something like, we've had a nice run. I'm handing you off to Titus. Laters. 
But since Paul has been so infected by the grace of God, it doesn't change the way he looks at the Corinthians. This last chapter reminds us that Paul isn't writing a theology paper from a library. He's actually writing and corresponding with a church that he's planted, one that he loves, and one that he wants to help hold fast to the gospel he's preached to them. And that's exactly what's happening here. A church that we've planted, full of people with their real sins, with their real struggles, real shortcomings. And we're just trying to hold fast to the gospel that we're preaching every single week. Grace forms our fellowship. It forms the way we view each other. It forms the way we view everything. And it forms the way that we engage each other in mission and with our finances. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So he's saying, hey, I've told other churches that we need to give money to this, to the poor saints in Jerusalem. I told all the ones in Galatia, and now I'm telling you what? On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. That's just as you have the money, whatever your level of income is. You set something aside. So there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter, whoever you guys want to send the money to Jerusalem, they'll do it. They'll carry your gift to Jerusalem. Verse 4, if it seems advisable that I should go, I'll go too. This is going to be a lot of money. So they're going to send a group of people, a lot of coin. Paul says, I want you to engage in this cooperative global gospel. He's calling them to give to the poor Jerusalem Christians. He's telling all the churches we need to do this. And think about why. This happens a couple of times. Why are the churches in Jerusalem so poor? I think probably, first of all, was what we see in Acts. What did they do? They were selling off their possessions. So they all had, everyone had everything in common. Eventually, I think they got to a point going, oh, no. We're going to have more money. And then Christianity, you know, blossomed out of Jerusalem in the same way that uh, Christians like today like to boycott stuff. Back then, they were probably being boycotted because they were being persecuted. Don't buy from the Christian uh, leather maker because they were the minority. So they were being outcast. Don't, don't buy from the Christian meat market providers. You, you see, so now they're hurting. And Paul says, this isn't just their issue. This is our issue. We're all going to give to the Jerusalem Christians. And what's amazing here is that he says, look at verse 2. On the first day of every week, so this is regular, ongoing giving just for them, each of you, he commands each of them to set something aside, store it up. I want every Christian involved, and I want it to start today until I come. He says, I don't want you to throw together a love offering the Sunday I get there. I want it to be now, regular, occurring, store it up, and then we'll deliver. And I want every Christian involved because grace widens our perspective. Grace doesn't just shape the culture of one local church. It broadens our perspective to look outside our walls and look at other Christians and go, they're our brothers and sisters too. Those are our brothers and sisters. He doesn't want them just to be cocooned to their own local needs, but to look beyond their needs because we're all bound together by the blood of the Lamb. That's why last year when our church was blessed by God to buy the 10 acres in Tomball at the exact same time. Another Acts 29 church in Houston was about to close on their land, and they were falling short in the giving. 
they'd sign all the papers and everything, and they thought they had it all. They ended up not having it all. And it was all going to be yanked away. They're going to lose it all. I'm like, we, we're about to lose it. And so they started calling all the other Acts 29 churches in Houston. Can you help us? I know it's last minute. I know we're so sorry. Can you help us? And so I got the phone call and just said, absolutely. Let me talk to the elders. Let me talk to the finance team. We're going to do something. They said, okay, I think they're X amount short. Let's, we got it. Let's meet it. God, was, God has been so gracious to us. Let's meet it because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. This isn't just about Redeemer. Ah, we have plans for that. I think we're going to do something. With, no, we're in this together. This goes all the way back to verse 2 of chapter 1. And verse 2 of chapter 1, he says to this church of God in Corinth, call to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So now he says, what I told you in verse 2 of chapter 1, that we're called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, let's put it to practice now in chapter 16. We need everyone to give to help our poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. You're called to do it. Now let's do it. You see, grace changes the way we think. It makes us global. We're called to be saints everywhere. This is why we support church plants all around the world. This is why we give to missionaries all around the world, because we're called to be together. And look at verse 7. Look at how Paul views. So grace changes the way they view their money. It's used for fellowship for all. And now look at verse 7. Paul says this changes the way we view each other. Verse 7, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. He says, I don't just want to breeze by you guys. I got to go to Macedonia. I got mission work to do in Macedonia. You see that in verse 5. But now he says, if the Lord permits, I want to spend quality and quantity time with you. He says, I'm in Ephesus because look at verse 8. How come he's not coming? Verse 8, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Verse 9, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Okay, all of a sudden, right there, that verse 9, that changes the way we talk about God gave me an open door. We usually think God's given me an open door because this path is really easy. That's not how Paul thinks. Paul says, there are a lot of adversaries right there. God's opening a door. This is way contradictory to how we think. We would view that and go, ooh, that must be a closed door. Paul says, no way. The door has been wide door for effective ministry is open to me. So he says, I got to stay in Ephesus, but I want to come see you guys, and I don't want to rush it because I got too much going on here. If I went there now, it'd just be rushed. I want to spend, and look what he says in verse six. Perhaps I'll stay with you, even spend the winter. So you may help me on my journey wherever I go. This is striking. Verse six is striking to me. Honestly, if I'm thinking on selfish terms, I can't imagine wanting to hang out with the Corinthians, let alone spend the winter with them. They're argumentative, they're divisive, they're unloving at times, they're unkind. And as I say all those things out loud, doesn't it reek of the man who Jesus talks about in the Gospels and who says on one street corner praying, thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the Corinthians. But when you think about yourself, don't you have strands of being argumentative? Aren't you at times divisive? Aren't you at times unloving and unkind? Why does Paul see all of that? And instead of going, I'm going to Macedonia, I'm not going to see you guys. He doesn't do that. He says, I want to spend time with you. Because Paul is not put off by the sins that Christians commit. 
He doesn't write people off by their struggles, by the difficulties they're trying to walk through. He can still call them beloved brothers because Paul doesn't define Christians by what they do, but by who they are. He doesn't define Christians by what they do or what they don't do, but he defines them and assesses them by who they are in Christ, beloved brothers and sisters. And how often is our fellowship with one another hindered because we identify each other by our sins? We identify each other by our struggles instead of being those who are redeemed by the resurrected and living Christ. That's why we can look at each other, confess safely, and go, I'm fine. Because you know who I am in Christ. I don't know who you are in Christ. When we look at each other, it should sound like chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. When we get to that point in a local church, the doors fling open for fellowship. It sure did for Jesus. He's the prime example of undoing and unraveling people's old identities and only dealing with people on the new identities they have in him. Same thing about Matthew, tax collector. Everyone hated tax collectors, but Jesus loved them. The Pharisees couldn't stand it. Why is he hanging out with tax collectors all the time? Why in the world is Matthew, the tax collector, part of his group? He came to Jesus, all that's done away with. Then you have Simon the Zealot who's basically a man who wants to usurp Rome. Matthew works for Rome. So we have a guy who works for Rome, a guy who wants to usurp Rome, now together, having fellowship in Christ. You have former prostitutes, lepers, the unclean, the outcasts of society, the blasphemers, the persecutors of the church all get to hang out with Jesus because we're not defined by what we did or what we do, but by who we are in Christ. It changes the game. This is the only place in the universe where that can happen. And Paul looks at the Corinthian church and doesn't care. Yes, you guys are suing each other. We're going to work on that. Yes, you guys got some weird stuff going on in the Lord's Supper. We're going to work on that, but I can't wait to spend time with you. He rejects the fast food brand of fellowship that's just in passing. And friends, I, I think Paul would tell those of us who show up on Sunday mornings, if we even do that, have no real connecting with or relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the week, he'd say, that's just in passing. And probably less than passing. That's just a head nod in the hallway of life. It's just a wave in traffic. So how's your fellowship with other Christians here? It's one thing to it's one thing to be at church and be a part of the church. Those are vastly different. How's your fellowship with other Christians? Is grace compelling it? Grace driving it? Grace motivating it? Grace setting it all up? And this isn't even a push to get in missional communities, as important as I think those are. But also, I think we've got to have, because we often think, okay, we've got to have like scheduled time together. Sure, why not? But what about the organic, just kind of underground, just Christian fellowship that occurs naturally? Just, hey, come over for dinner. Our door's open. I don't care. Come over. I'm not getting up. I'm not putting on nice clothes. I'm not even going to vacuum. Just come over. I don't care. 
If he can stand, you know, the poopy diaper that's all by the back door, you can definitely come over. Come over for dinner. Hey, let's get lunch. Hey, you want to get coffee? You want to hang out? You want to play a board game? Want to go see a movie? And just encourage each other? I mean, as much as we have scheduled fellowship, I don't think Paul's arriving at Corinth and go, okay, guys, I'm coming. Let's set up a schedule. Let's set up a small group system so I can now go be with everybody. Just nap. Let's be together. We need both in our lives. Because when fellowship is infused with grace, the relational guns get lowered. And who wouldn't want more of that? When grace sets the tone of our fellowship, we get put at ease. When grace sets the tone of fellowship, our our money becomes less gripped in our hands. We want to see each other and be with each other. And then we're put at ease and honored with each other. Look at verse 10. When Timothy comes, so Timothy is on his way to visit the church at Corinth, and look at what he says, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him. Verse 10 is fascinating. Timothy's coming. What does Paul say? Why, why does Paul say this? I think Paul, in his mind, he goes, you, you guys treat me pretty terribly sometimes. And Timothy's on his way, and he's younger. And he's not an official apostle. They're probably going to be punks to him as they've been to me. And I love Timothy. I do not want that to happen. So what does he say? He cuts it off. Do not despise him. Put him at ease among you. Put him at ease. That's a great insight into a church culture. A gracious church puts people at ease. They don't have to impress They don't have to earn a seat at the table. They don't have to perform to be welcomed. You know, like in the movie Gladiator, the end of, you know, a little gladiator fight happens and they look to the emperor and he kind of goes like this. And then it's like, "Mm, nah, kill him. Or it's, he's good. He can have another day to live. Sometimes churches operate like that. Mm, You're out. But in Christ, if for anyone who comes here is in Christ and is stumbling together to follow Jesus, it's always. There's this one little video got put up on Facebook and it like went viral this past week. I don't know if you saw it. It was a guy on an escalator, an older guy on an escalator. Okay, he looked to be like, I don't know, maybe he was like a senior citizen type guy, probably a lot older than that. And he's trying to get on the escalator and he trips and falls. And he falls on the escalator and you're like, oh no. But the escalator's going up, and he's tumbling on the escalator trying to get up, but he's still going up because the escalator's going up. And the little thing at the top said, sanctification. I thought, that is a perfect visual of what the Christian life is like. I'm falling, I'm stumbling, but the whole time, regardless of my own power, I'm trending forward. I'm going up. This is why we're to be gracious with each other, because the gospel really does put us at ease. It brings our sanity back. I mean, I don't think I could make it a single day if I didn't really know and believe and feel that I've been forgiven of everything because of Christ. I'd be a wreck. But since I am at ease with God, I can't be uneasy with each other. And since you, if you are in Christ, since you have been put at ease with God, you can't be uneasy with one another. Look at verse 11. Timothy's coming. Do not despise him. It'd be easy for them to despise him. He's younger. He's timid. He's not Paul. They already think Paul's a weenie. Timothy's going to be a weenie. 
He says, do not despise him. Don't despise him because he's not like me. Don't despise him because he's not like Apollos. Don't despise him because of his age. Don't despise him because of his status. But help him. Grace motivates us to honor each other. And look at what he says about Apollos. Verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. This is fascinating because you remember the division they're having in this church. They think Apollos is better than Paul. And Paul doesn't say, I told him not to come. He says, I strongly urged him to come. That wouldn't happen in American Christianity. It would be, eh, this is kind of a wise thing. Apollos, you stay back. We'll send Paul. We don't want to have any more kind of conflict division. Paul says, no, I'm running right to it. I encouraged him. I urged him to go because Paul doesn't give in to the politics. He's thinking, oh, this is my church. Apollos, you stay back. Go, man. And Apollos says, I don't want to go. And I love that dynamic because we think, oh, Paul, no one ever told Paul no. Paul says, no, I'm not going there. And Paul Paul doesn't say, and I told him to his face, you better go. He can go. He'll go when he wants. He'll go when the time is right. I think he's saying this to show that he honors Apollos. He's my brother. He doesn't feel at odds with him. He's honoring Timothy. He's honoring Apollos. And now look at verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. I think these were leaders, some of the first believers in the Corinthian church. You can see that in verse 15. He says, I I rejoice at their coming because they have made up for your absence. So these guys came from Corinth. They're encouraging Paul. And now they're the ones going back to Corinth holding this book, holding the letter that he's writing. They're the ones delivering it. And what does Paul say? 18, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours and give recognition to such people. Honor them. Grace motivates us to honor each other. And these guys made the journey from Corinth to Ephesus to see Paul. Now they're making the journey back. What does Paul say about them? They've refreshed me. They've refreshed you. Give them recognition. And it'd be easy to see how these people would be upset with Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Why? Because they are also probably the ones who told Paul about all the issues in the church. There's a guy with his stepmom. Something freaky's going on. There's people suing each other. People are getting drunk at the Lord's table. People are going crazy with prophecy in tongues. I mean, it's just it's getting nuts, Paul. And you could see how the people, because they would get this letter, these people would deliver it, and then maybe Stephanus or Achaicus, then they would read this whole letter to the whole church, and they'd all be listening. So you can imagine when he gets to, it's been reported to me that a young man has his mother-in-law or his stepmother, and you are arrogant and rejoice that they'd probably be going, how did he know about that? They start looking at Stephanus. He's like... It's been reported to me that you're suing each other. So you could see how the church culture would go, a bunch of snitches. Snitches get stitches. I mean, you could see how this would happen. And instead, Paul says, recognize these men. Honor them. When grace sets the tone of the church, honor and recognition flow. I think Kevin and Barry are worthy of so much recognition and honor. Their commitment to you, their love for you, their sacrifices, their prayers. I mean, these are men that want you to love Jesus. And every time we meet, they refresh my spirit. 
I'm always refreshed by their pastoral heart and their desire for Jesus to be made much of. And Kevin and I, we're, we're employed by the church, and Pastor Barry, this is on top of his other full-time job that he works. And Lawson, his love for the church and the students and his commitment to be here and to serve and to see people grow in Christ. And Christina, our children's ministry director, her passion for the children of Redeemer, for your kids, not to just learn individual Bible stories, but to learn the whole story of the Bible, to learn all about, from all of Scripture, how it's all about Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And for, I mean, just even this past weekend, for Mandy and the, our women's ministry leaders, putting on a killer women's conference with Janie Orland from Nashville, refreshing all the ladies who came in God's Word. And they didn't just contain it to our church. Opened it up to Veritas Church in Magnolia. They brought ladies to come. To Genesis Church in Spring, they brought ladies. Into King's Church, the church we planted, they were all able to come because we're called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, grace sets the tone, and so people are recognized. People are honored. One of the things I'm just trying to learn and just practice in my life is that when I see someone and I'm encouraged by it and I see something like that's, man, that was awesome, to not just think it. Like I, one of our past, I was talking about this with Gabe and Chad after our men's gathering on Tuesday night, that I can feel something. Like I look at somebody and I'm thinking this and Brett Gill was there and I was looking at Brett during our honor time and I thought, man, that guy, he just, ever since I've known him, he's always loved Rachel, his wife so well. That guy just loves his daughters. It's just so encouraging. Hmm. I'm thinking all this in my mind. I thought, I should just say that to him. Yeah, that, yeah, that'd be godly. Brett, I'm so encouraged, man. I just want to honor you. I think you do an amazing job at loving your family. This is what we've got to learn in the Christian life, to recognize. And when Romans 12, Romans 12, 10 says to outdo one another in showing honor. The people that refresh you in Christ, do you tell them? Why not do it this week? And why not seek to refresh other people in Christ, to remind them of God's grace, to be a channel, a conduit, a catalyst of God's grace to them, reminding them they have a new identity in Christ, reminding them that they've been saved and forgiven from all of their sins and all of their crimes against God, reminding them they have eternal life to come, to look beyond today and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, when grace sets the tone of the church, everything changes. Look at verse 13. He just said in 12, Apollos isn't coming. He'll come when he has opportunity. And then 13 and 14 just kind of seems like out of place a little to me. I think my suspicion is this is probably going to be the gist of what Apollos is going to tell them. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Paul wants them to be watchful against what? Immorality. False teaching to stand firm in the faith, what they know about God, what they know about Jesus and who they are in Christ, stand firm against all that, and that will solve their immorality, that will solve their suing each other, that will solve their abusing of the Lord's table. And this next phrase, act like men. It's an interesting phrase. I think every man should hear that and be corrected and comforted all at once. For the Bible to tell us to look in our eyes and say, Metters, act like a man. Why? Because every single one of us is learning what it means to be a man. To be like Jesus. To act like men. Because at times we don't act like men. We act like children. And at times we don't act like men, we act like the serpent. 
and we act like fools. But we are to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be strong in and with Christ. To act like men, and this applies to men and women, that it's a metaphor used for sounding people to battle, to be resolute, to be bold, to be quick, to be decisive. Because of the gospel, we don't endure gospel-compromising teaching, and we don't endure gospel-compromising attitudes and actions that hurt each other. So be bold, be firm, stand, stand strong. That's a call to boldness. And before any man or anyone hears those words, those words and thinks, okay, this is a call to bravado, it's a call to being a tough guy, this is a call to, you know, do some chest puffing, I'm going to be a man, I'm going to be strong. Look at 14. Let all that you do be done in love. He tempers all of that bravado, oh, be a man, yeah. Let all that you do be done in love. All done in love. Reminding them of 1 Corinthians 13. Patience, kindness, gentleness not irritable, not resentful, all done, and look at what he says, all done in love. Two words that are easy to ignore, mega important, all and in. Let all that you do be done in love. From love, sure. With love, sure. But Paul says in. Love is to be the ecosystem, the atmosphere of what we do. We can't do something and then just smuggle love in and a little, put a little cherry of love on top. Oh, yeah, by the way, I love you. No. All that we do, all of life, every interaction, every encounter, no shortcuts, no edits, no workarounds, no yeah buts, no asterisks, all of life. Why? Because God's immeasurable grace toward you shouldn't be edited towards each other. God's immeasurable grace towards you shouldn't be edited towards one another. And what a call this verse is. Because isn't this how Jesus is towards us? Every move towards us in love. Everything he did for us in love. Everything he does for us in love. When you are in awe of the love of God, it leads you to loving each other. Then he talks about next how the grace and love in our fellowship, this Priscilla and Aquila in verse 19, they send you greetings, hearty greetings in the Lord. And verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. He talks about the church in their house, churches in Asia, Aquila and Prisca or Priscilla send you greetings. And verse 20 is like the end of an Oscar speech. In case I'm forgetting anybody, all the brothers want to thank the academy. They all send you greetings. And now look at verse 20. I mean, the word greetings used five times in this little section. Because I think when grace sets a tone, it's a welcoming place. Hearty greetings in the Lord. But 20 blows me away. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right, look, we've got to obey this verse in the Bible. Hope you brought chapstick, <laughs> have a conga line or something afterwards. What does this mean? Nothing like this at all in the early church in that period in Greco-Roman culture. A kiss, yes. Just a little kiss on the cheek. It's good to see you. You know, some, some Spanish cultures, Latin cultures do that. Some other country, cultures in Europe do that still. So what is it? On, on the cheek, yes, but Paul calls this a holy kiss. It's amazing to me. Here's why. A genuine expression of love and fellowship can be holy. 
a handshake, a hug, a, a hand on the shoulder infused with Christianly love can be holy before the Lord. Our interactions are not small. They're cosmic. Hey, good to see you, man. Ah, oh, I love you. It's an act of holiness unto Christ. Nothing that we do is insignificant. We can be holy before the Lord. And Paul ends with a vital message. I think this sums up the whole book. I think it's a charge to every Christian and probably the greatest, most needed application today for all of us. Verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Man, that's a strong verse. So what is the mark of a Christian? What's the tell? What's the giveaway? This person's a Christian. Not theology. Demons have good theology. The mark, the tell of a Christian is love for Jesus. The God-man, the Savior, the person, the Lord, Jesus Himself. And the greatest need for Bible Belt Christians is to be saved from their Christianity and to be saved to Christ. To fall out of love with your Christianity and to be in love with Jesus. To experience His love. We should all look at our lives and say, do I have love for the Lord Jesus? And I'm not asking, do you know you're supposed to have love for the Lord Jesus? That's usually where we go, because I know that's where I went for years. Do I have love for the Jesus? Do I have love for Jesus? Well, I know I'm supposed to, so yeah. That's not what the Bible's teaching at and getting at. Do I for real? You cannot be content with loving the propositional truths about Jesus as precious as they are, but they are not the person of Jesus, himself, love for him. I think this really settles the whole book into one. If you have love for the Lord Jesus, you obey him. You won't sue each other. You won't abuse the Lord's table. Guys, I used to think preaching about the love of Jesus was cheesy and juvenile. I was clearly an idiot back then. And really, when I think about it, I was just too immature to understand it. That's probably how some of you are too. The love of Jesus, yeah, 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 kumbaya, whatever. No, you're just too immature to grasp it yet. Doctrines, systems of theology, acronyms, oh, easy. But to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that's something else altogether. To be plunged into the deep end of the great love of God. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. That his love doesn't shift. That he loved me before the foundation of the world. He loves me now, not just some future version of me. And his love is going to carry me into eternity. And we'll, that, as Edward says, heaven is just a world of love. But now I just feel like I'm enjoying his uninhibited love for me. That he doesn't love me moderately. That he's loved me lavishly. These immeasurable riches in Christ, that He's given me full strength love. It's so freeing. It's just joy creating that I'm saved, that I am now. What shall separate me from the love of Christ? 
nothing. So do you know it? Or do you just know of it? See the differences? That word of changes the game. Do you know the love of Jesus or do you just know of it? Have you experienced it? He wants you to. He invites you to it today. And the fact that Paul uses this phrase, let him be accursed. If anyone has no love for Jesus, let him be accursed. If he's not prized, if he's not valued, if he's not cherished, if he's not beheld, let him be accursed. A strong language. Why? Why accursed? Because the only way you don't have love for Jesus is because you don't believe that he was accursed for you in your place for your sins on the cross. You reject the very reason Jesus came to earth to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come just to teach you nice things, to teach you morality. He came to become a curse for you, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So if you don't love Jesus, the fact that he became a curse for you, the only logical and explanatory connection is, is that because you are still under the curse of sin. Because you are accursed. Because you don't believe that he died for you. You don't believe that he loves you. You don't believe that he rose again for you. So you don't know him. Therefore, you cannot love him. But he says, come to me. All who labor and heavy laden, come to me who are accursed, and I will make you blessed. Either Jesus became a curse for you, or, or you are still under the curse. Do you know the love of Jesus? It's the greatest message in the world. It's the most enduring message in the universe. Christian, if he became a curse for you, are you enjoying his grace? Do you love and do you respond and worship to him? Are you living accordingly for his glory, igniting love for one another? See, grace sets the tone of the church. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, verse 23. That's all about his grace. It changes the way we view our money, changes the way we want to spend time together, changes the way we talk about each other, the way we treat each other, and even changes the way we greet each other. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us. Let's pray.